0: Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball.
1: But yes, indeed. Welcome in. It is Downtown Podcast, episode number 215. Rich Kimball here, along with Kerry Haskell. And Downtown brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. A couple of fine conversations coming up for you on the podcast this week. A little later on, we'll talk with writer Colin Fleming about the works of Arthur Conan Doyle, specifically Sherlock Holmes and others who have jumped in to the Holmes genre through the years. But up first, a very talented writer, journalist, two-time Pulitzer Prize nominee Howard Blum has got a powerful new book that looks at the inner workings of the CIA. The thing reads like, one of the best thrillers you'll ever dive into. The book is called The Spy Who Knew Too Much. Here's Howard Blum on downtown. Howard, thanks for being with us again. My pleasure. Glad to be back. This was such a wonderful book. There were there were at least a couple of occasions where I had to stop and remind myself that this was a work of nonfiction. It reads like such an incredible thriller.
2: Yeah, except the bullets in this book are real. <laughs> and the people who get killed, are the real lives that are lost. It's not a not a movie.
1: No, absolutely not. And it's a fascinating story. What drew you to the story of Pete Bagley?
2: Well, I I was fascinated by this man who served his country in the CIA, risked his life, came from a distinguished family. And yet he was victimized by our own intelligence service. Uh, He's sort of forced to retire after he's put under suspicion, even though he's totally exonerated. He's cleared. He's even given a promotion. But now his reputation has been tainted. Uh, So he leaves the agency, retires. And yet an event happens uh, that pulls him back in and he goes back in, begins this investigation because he's a patriot, because he cares what's happening to America. And uh, that sort of character to me seemed so admirable that I wanted to, to
1: write about him. Well, and the event that really kicks things off uh, is in September of 1978 in Chesapeake Bay. Uh, an unattended sailboat, the Brillig, is discovered. Clearly, there's been something that's gone on on that boat. And then about 10 days later, uh, a body washes up that uh, is believed to be, or at least it's claimed initially, that it is a former CIA operative by the name of John Paisley.
2: Yes. First, when the boat goes aground, They investigate, the Coast Guard investigates the boat. They see bullet uh, cartridges on the deck. They go below deck to the galley, and they find top-secret CIA documents. And there's an electronic device, which is later identified as a burst transmitter. That's a classified device used for communicating with satellites. But there's no sign of the boat's owner, John Paisley, the CIA official. Ten days later, as you said, this body wrapped in 38 pounds of chains manages to surface to the water of the Chesapeake Bay. There's a bullet hole behind the left ear, and the CIA says says this is an assassination. Uh, And they quickly have the body cremated, uh, and they hope everything else about this case will go up in smoke, too. But a lot of questions remain. For example, was that body really paisley? The first thing that you would normally do is check the fingerprints. Uh, every CIA employee has his fingerprints on file. However, the CIA says, "Well, not so fast. <laughs> we don't have uh, Paisley's fingerprints. They somehow have disappeared." I used to say that, you know, in high school, the dog ate my homework. <laughs> uh, but here was the CIA trying to pass that off. And then, how they explain that how he committed suicide? Here's the CIA explanation uh paisley goes on deck he wraps himself like a mummy in these 38 pounds of chains trundles over to the side of the boat has a gun in his right hand because he's right-handed manages to somehow hurl himself off the deck and while in midair even though he's wrapped in chains before he can hit the water he reaches across his body to his left ear and and shoots himself and that way he commits suicide it seems you'd have to be a bit of a gymnast to do that. It seems like the CIA's explanation is a bit contorted too. And it's this this event which brings my hero Pete Bagley uh, back in to investigate uh, what happened really to Paisley and how does this fit into the puzzle that he had been investigating his entire career about a mole uh, being embedded in the agency of a traitor. Uh, working for the Russians in the highest levels of the CIA,
1: and that's yeah, the ultimate in, in counterintelligence. And that's it, to me. What makes the book so fascinating is learning about the well, the things that we the general public just doesn't know about the agency and the levels of deception, the the double agents, the possible triple agents, and it really is like something out of a, a spy thriller. Yes, uh, you
2: know, it's it's a world of. of intrigues, deceptions, and also grudges. There there are different warring camps that that Bagley gets caught up in the middle in the CIA, and these differences in the CIA exist to this day. You know, we're fighting a, you know, the Cold War has now become a de facto hot war in the Ukraine, and the possibility of our secrets being stolen uh, in this new hot war is a scary one.
1: We're talking with Howard Blum about his new book, The Spy Who Knew Too Much. There are so many fascinating characters in your book. Uh, you've done tremendous research on this. And one of the things that you unearthed in your research uh, research is the notion that uh, maybe it would be good to reappraise the career and the reputation of James Angleton.
2: Yes, Angleton was the famed head of counterintelligence uh, for the CIA. And he was a very aggressive counterintelligence agency. Uh, He was derided towards the end of his career for being paranoid. I think there are some excesses that, of course, he he took part in, but I think he was more sinned against than sinning, as to use a Shakespearean phrase. I I think he was uh, of great service to this country, and he was out to protect it, and and I think we've become too complacent. I think maybe we need uh, people who are more committed to aggressive counterintelligence as angleton was
1: well one of the key characters in a pete bagley's search for the truth and he's such a fascinating character is a man by the name of yuri nosenko who uh, bagley referred to as the rosetta stone can you talk a bit about him
2: sure uh this harkens back to the kennedy assassination after uh jfk is assassinated uh pete bagley is working in headquarters in, like most of the Soviet division, uh, they're fixated on one mission, really, at this time. Was the KGB involved in the Kennedy assassination? Because after all, uh, Oswald had lived in the Soviet Union for quite a long time before he redefected back to the United States. What is the Soviet involvement? So while Bagley's trying to piece that out, an event occurs in Geneva. One of his old agents resurfaces he puts an ad in the local paper which is a bit of word code a signal that let's get together we have to meet so Bagley hurries over to geneva uh the agreement is that they will where they will meet they will look at the open up the phone book in geneva and find the first alphabetized cinema (laughs) movie theater uh that'll be there so they, they pete goes to the abc cinema at 7:15, that's the appointed hour, and he sees uh, Yuri there. Uh, Bagley is in a disguise because he doesn't know who's following Yuri. Uh, maybe he hasn't evaded his Soviet uh, handlers. Maybe he's even now turned turned on Bagley. So he now, though, has to pass to him where this meeting, where the debriefing will take place. Where is the safe house? And he can't really call it out to him. So he has to do something that's called a brush pass. And you learn this in in CIA spy school, where the object is you have to walk past someone without breaking stride and deposit something in someone's pocket, this piece of paper with the message. And Pete executes this flawlessly. Uh, Nosenko gets the location of the new safe house. They go to the the safe house. They meet up there. Uh, Nosenko quickly tries to polish off a full bottle of single malt scotch (laughs) provided by the American taxpayers. Uh, And then after he's had these several drinks, he announces, I know exactly what was the KGB's involvement in Kennedy's assassination. I saw the files on Lee Harvey Oswald that were made both before the assassination by the KGB and afterwards. And I can categorically say that the KGB had no involvement. And this is great news uh Bagley decides because you know this will prevent uh most likely World War Three. If Russia was involved, who knows what the circumstances w- uh, would lead to. But then Bagley has to think, this is just too coincidental for him to be telling me this. This is what I want to hear. And this could he could be telling me this for two reasons. One because it's true or two because it's false. And if it's false that means perhaps that the KGB was actually involved in the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> so, this is the wilderness of mirrors, as one spy master called it, that Bagley is living in. But it's apparent that he has to get uh, Yuri back to the United States. And they get him back to the United States for this debriefing, preparing to take him before the Warren Commission to, so that he can say what he knows. But in the course of this interrogation, he realizes. This spy is not telling me the truth. He's telling me lies and he's inventing stories. And now Pete and his superiors have to decide, what are we going to do with this guy? Uh, we've got him here. What do we do if he's telling us lies? And they decide right off that they can't take him to the Warren Commission. And while they're trying to figure out what to do with him, they send Nisenko off to Hawaii. They uh, <laughs> They hire a red-headed prostitute to accompany him for this week in the sun in Hawaii. Uh, this romp in, in the sun is paid for by you and me, all the American taxpayers who are, who are listening. Uh, and meanwhile when he comes back, they decide to subject Yuri to a harsh interrogation and the inter- harsh interrogation as their doubts grow, become harsher and harsher and eventually Nisenko is locked up in a specially designed, 12-by-12 12 12 room in a CIA facility in the Virginia woods, uh, Camp Perry. Uh, but he doesn't crack. And they don't really know what to do with him. Finally, the CIA is divided into two dissenting camps. There's Pete Begley who be- and his people who believe that Yuri is a planted Soviet agent to spread lies. There's another group that believes he's telling the truth, and this group wins. Uh, Yuri is taken out of this sort of prison. He's given $75,000 bonus and then put on the CIA payroll. And uh, to this day, the CIA is divided into these two camps who believe Yuri was working for the Soviets or was a genuine defector, and the people who believe Pete Begley was paranoid or Pete was a hero.
1: Well, it's truly a world where you can trust no one. Uh, despite that, was there was there a level of, of perhaps grudging respect that uh, Begley might have for somebody like Nasenko?
2: Uh, Begley did not have a professional's respect. He had utter uh, disdain. Uh, he saw them saw Nasenko as a man who was trying to undermine the country that he loved, and he he couldn't respect his adversary at all. All he cared about was protecting America.
1: I, I was stunned at some of the revelations early on. I think in the first meeting they have when Nisenko talked about some of the tactics the KGB would use, uh, dropping powder into the, the coats of, uh, of American diplomats, uh, putting, putting a substance on the roof of their cars that allowed them to be tracked. It was really some amazing things that they were working on.
2: Yes. And, and, and you know, in spy activities, you have to give away something good. If you want to be believed. Uh, and Nisenko gave this because it, it would only be a matter of time, uh, if the Russians believed before this was found out by another defector who, was or, who had already come to America. Uh, so it's creating this illusion that you're being totally confident when you're really setting out to deceive. That, that's the work of a good double agent.
1: Well, I don't want to give anything away. I want people to read the book. It is so good. But suffice it to say that uh, what Pete Bagley discovered at that cemetery in Moscow certainly changed and would change the way we look at our intelligence operations.
2: Yes. Uh, what Pete discovers that day is, again, I think the answer to the last great mystery of the Cold War. And it's a mystery that reveals a continuum of treason that exists to this day, Uh into our new sort of de facto hot war. And, and that scene on a snowy day in front of the Zovadich uh, Cemetery in, in Moscow is a very important moment in espionage history.
1: Uh, did Pete at all feel uh, redeemed at the end of his life?
2: Well, he felt, I think, that he carried on the good fight, that he didn't surrender. It would have been really easy for him to walk away. He had his pension. He had a very happy life. He loved his wife. He loved his children. Uh, he had lots of activities. Uh, and he could have said, well, who needs this, this trouble? Who needs to go back into these old wars? Who needs to put myself out to be besmirched, to be called paranoid again? Man. But he did this. He put himself in this position because he wanted to get to the bottom of the things. He, he thought it was so important that America be protected. And uh, that's why, in my eyes, I think he's a real, genuine American hero. He refused to surrender. He refused to take the easy path.
1: Our intelligence community has been under uh, intense scrutiny for several years now. Uh, Howard, do we still have a need for covert operations?
2: We sure do. I mean, you know, look what's happening in the Ukraine today. We sure need uh, agents there more than ever to find out what Russia is going to do next. I mean, we're talking about now... The possibility of a nuclear war uh you know there's <laughs> what's going to be the end game in the ukraine and if and if we become too successful will putin decide to use a tactical nuclear weapon it sure would be good to know what's on putin's mind i mean you can pick up the newspaper uh, all the time and you'll read reports well putin has parkinson's putin has cancer uh it would be nice to have agents in place who really can tell uh, our spy masters what's really going on. And the spy masters their job is to provide intelligence to the decision makers uh, who run the country.
1: What are the lessons we can learn from the story of Pete Bagley?
2: Well, we, I think the lesson is that the Russians are engaged in very aggressive counterintelligence. Uh, they are coming, you know, the way they try to, mess with our elections well they're also trying to invasively attack our intelligence services and we can't say this was just something that happened in the past. I think we have to focus on it now and we have to be aggressive and have our counterintelligence actions focused. Right now they're sort of diffused. We have very a whole lot of a whole alphabet soup of different intelligence agencies having their own, counterintelligence services. And I think this has to be centralized into one unified counterintelligence command to lead and direct these spy wars uh, to make sure our intelligence agencies are not penetrated.
1: The book is called The Spy Who Knew Too Much, an ex-CIA officer's quest through a legacy of betrayal. It is a powerful, tremendous read. Uh, Howard Blum, thank you so much for being with us again today.
2: Uh, I appreciate you having me. Pleasure speaking
1: with you. Author Howard Blum talking about his great new book, The Spy Who Knew Too Much, on Downtown the Podcast. We'll pause for a word from Cross Insurance. And when we come back, we talk with writer Colin Fleming about Sherlock Holmes next
0: strength
1: back on downtown the podcast do and up next conversation with our friend writer colin fleming taking a different look at Sherlock Holmes the works of Arthur Conan Doyle and others who uh, did their own versions of the Holmes saga. Today we're going to talk about Sherlock Holmes uh, unusual Sherlock Holmes and we start with a, a radio production that I enjoyed tremendously uh, the Red-Headed League featuring Carlton Hobbs as Sherlock Holmes what a wonderful production that was.
0: These are so good, and they don't get talked about a lot. Now, I'm sure you know this. There are people who are, well, as I posted in the blog today, many people are just simply insane, and they will give you plenty of evidence of that. And sort of like in that category are these people, like these diehard Sherlockians, like they're just some of the most hardcore people, like, going. They think that, like, Sherlock Holmes was this guy, and they all talk like they're in this weird mind cult type of thing. But for most people even people who are really into Sherlock Holmes, I think that like these things that we're talking about are going to talk about are they're, they're off the beaten Sherlockian path. So Carlton Hobbs, or as he was known, you see his nickname, Hobbo. Yes. To his <laughs> it's like, it's like the type of uh, nickname that someone in a Wodehouse story would have, or it's like this upper crust sort of nickname and, He doesn't come up a lot when we discuss like the best homes and we have all the homes in different media. There's obviously like the print homes and there's the TV homes and there's, of course, film homes and so many of them. And there's a really rich vein of radio, Sherlock Holmes. So he was doing his thing in the 1950s. And then I just I find this so compelling. He was on what was called the light program in the BBC in the 1960s. So like go back. 50, 60 years, rather, to 1962, you could have heard the Beatles doing their thing on the light program with Pete Best, still in the drummer's chair, followed by Hobbo as Sherlock Holmes. And I've read descriptions and accounts of what he brings to the character, and they tend to say he was avuncular. He sounds pretty spry. I I know avuncular just means like uncle-like. So, whatever, it can be a vuncular at uh, 27, technically. But it has this kind of freighted meaning of, like, eh, get it up there in years a little bit. And he's not that way. No, He's no. sort of dashing in the way he speaks and believable. And I think he's, like, right in the meaty part of the curve in terms of, like, giving voice to that character that you read in the 56 stories and in the four novels. In the Redheaded League, I love the Redheaded League in any form because it's such a weird conceit. <laughs> the plot is so weird. And I think that I'm just fascinated by art. And it's a lot of what I do. Art that's weird, that works. Star Wars is art that's weird, that works. Sergeant Pepper is weird, and it works. Waiting for Godot is weird, and it works. Brackets is weird, and it works. And so I think the redheaded league is like the most weird story that works in all of the Doyle canon.
1: Yeah. My my son redhead was listening to it uh, with me for a little bit. And I asked him, would you, you would you join this redheaded league? Would you take a chance and do something like this? And he was, I think at that point was uh, fairly perceptive and already said something to the effect that it sounds like a scam. But it's,
0: it's a funny scam because it's played straight. Like they go all in, like when they tug the guy's beard, it's like, we've had impossible. <laughs> right. And what, what makes the scam work is that it, it, it gets this sweetness, the sweet quality to it. Like with the adult who gets all into it. Like when he's hired, he takes the job seriously. He goes for people who don't know. It's like all these guys with red hair, they line up for this like job, which is just copying things out of the encyclopedia. And, like, only one person is going to get the job, and it's based upon, like, your the quality of your red hair. So they're, like, lined up around
2: the <laughs> block. It's
0: like it's, they're not staying through the scam. This one simpleton gets this job, and he ends up kind of liking it because he does get paid, and also he's, like, learning about the aardvark and all these things. <laughs> the so he's getting, like, this education. And then, meanwhile, it's just this ruse to for to like tunnel and create all this like weird ways of going about theft and everything. And, and like in the Jeremy Brett production from Granada TV, it ties in to professor Moriarty and it it gets this sinister edge to it. But I I do love that sort of like conceit of it. And Doyle was just like, yeah. now one thing that's interesting about Doyle with these stories, I'm sure you know this, he was not that fond of these characters they kind of became people that he had to keep writing about, and then he kills them off. He's like, finally, that's over. I can focus on my real work. And everyone's like, we want Holmes and Watson! like, ah, bastard. And so they kind of haunted him, and I think that freed him up in a way to do things that maybe he might not have done if he was towing the writerly line, which he did in a lot of his sort of like more quote-unquote,
1: correct works in his mind. And uh, we're talking with Colin Fleming on downtown. You, you mentioned people wanted more homes, more Watson. Conan Doyle wasn't going to do that. And so others would try and and take up the baton. And one of the most interesting ones are what's known as the uh, solar ponds stories. Uh, it's a fascinating backstory. Can you explain a little of that for people?
0: Sure, and, and these are... So these stories are written by a guy named August Derleth, and he was the founder of Arkham House. And Arkham House was – I've written about Arkham House in the past. It was this uh, independent publishing house that essentially rescued H.P. Lovecraft's writings from oblivion, and it became this home for – all of these cool horror writers from the past and from the present, from like the golden age or the 20th century golden age, like Clark Ashton Smith. And so these books are highly collectible. I mean, like really, if there was just one press you were going to be into, it's almost like with record labels. You think of like jazz and blue note, that kind of thing. It's like a house sound or a vibe or whatever it might be, not to be limiting, but Arkham House would just be one that could inspire like a life of scholarship and passion and... And, and just reading these books in your home as a regular guy and partaking in Facebook discussion groups, of which there are myriad for, for this published account. So August Lyft was this precocious student. He's in college, and uh, he's disappointed at the time that there weren't more home stories. So we have the four novels and the 56 stories, and that wasn't enough for him. So he writes Conan Doyle in England. He's like, hey, are there going to be any more? And uh, Doyle writes him back, and he's polite, but he's like, nah, sorry, bro. I'm done with that. And Derlis is like, um, okay, can I write them? Can I, can I take it up? <laughs> and Doyle's like, no, you can't. And so Derlis says, fine, I shall invent my own. And he, it's funny what he does. He moves these stories like to the, to the 1930s, and he, instead of Sherlock Holmes, we have Stoller Pond. Like he, like, he takes everybody, instead of Mycroft Holmes. We have Bancroft
2: hole.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so he totally rips it off out of love. I would say he rips it up. I like this because when you're writing something, this is just good advice. All you writers out there, you ever watch like a hockey game and they start late and the, and the, the analyst is like, for you kids watching, <laughs> like they do that, like with four minutes left in the third, I'm like, no, they're not watching this. They're not here. But for you writers out there, you want to make sure that you write something that you really dig to if you were a reader, not just like to your own weird, peculiar sensibilities, but it has to fire you up. It has to get you going. And this is something that got this particular college student, and then he just wrote a lot of these stories, going. He had a lot of fun with it, and they really they really do work. Solar Ponds has his own personality, but he's very homesy and at the same time. And you can read them, and I don't want to, like, flag off Conan Doyle, but you're not taking a massive, like, haircut. Do you know what I mean to be reading these stories? I was reading them last night in bed on my phone. I'm like, oh, this is very rollicking. All
1: right, let's move from there to talking about one of Holmes' most famous works, but looking at it from a dif- different perspective, The Hound of the Baskervilles as a work of nature writing.
0: Yeah, and that's really how it hits me. And it's, I think it's probably the most famous of the Sherlock Holmes stories. It's not stories, novel, one of the four novels. But I think it's just one of those, it's like Dracula. It's from 1902, so it's actually five years after Stoker's Dracula. And to sort of set the scene, Holmes had been killed off, had not gone well for that guy at the waterfall and uh, with professor moriarty and so there was a outcry from the reading public at the time they'd like bring back those those guys in 221B we want to go back there and and doyle kind of compromised he's like okay jackasses you're not getting like continuing adventures i'll give you something that happened before he died though and that's it's like a prequel is what hound of the mm. is and it has the supernatural element that can also be explained away is explained away. Although there are eerie things that happen. But if you read this book, it's like when you listen to like the who in 1971, they played behind blue eyes. Pete Townsend would introduce to me and say, we don't have Keith Moon for a lot of this, but he finds us in the end. We don't have Sherlock Holmes himself for a lot of it. It's like, he's like Watson, I think the time has come for you to go out there <laughs> and to do some deduction, my son, and watch, It's like, yeah, my moment has arrived. And off he goes. But meanwhile, Holmes is, like, shadowing him because he doesn't trust Watson off on his own and all that stuff, and he pops up in the hot and all that. But if you read it, the descriptions could come out of Thoreau's notebooks, of the Moors, mm. things of that nature. And a lot of the characterization in this novel a big character a huge character more than the actual hound maybe more than anything is the setting and so doyle is painting with the pen throughout this and like anything and i i reread these things quite often and so like once a year and when i do i'm just always struck by the fact that no one talks about this as a piece of nature writing like it could compel you to check out the woods in the same way that Thoreau does when he goes and he writes and he he, he is just ravenous about going like a blueberry.
1: By the same token, uh, you say the 1939 film version, probably most famous version of the story, is a horror story.
2: Yes,
0: and so we have uh, Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. And so 1939, they're doing two Holmes pictures. And uh, they're not even like sort of like the stars of the picture because the studio doesn't know how this is going to go. And these, before they jump ship to a different studio, these these first two pictures are just, uh, they're like all-time American uh, or all-time sort of like 20th century films. They go into the Sherlock Holmes hat, but they really stand up well on their own and when these films were functioning at a high level as we've talked about with The Scarlet Claw in 1944 they were operating as horror films and so uh, this was obviously going to be co-opted with Hammer and Peter Cushing was going to play Sherlock Holmes and Hound of the Baskervilles at the end of the 1950s for that studio but it's something different in Black and White and On Those Moors mm. and so you just talk about it as like this film of of deduction and detective work and all of that. But it's not inaccurate to say, okay, Dracula, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, uh, Son of Frankenstein, The Mummy. Like that kind of film, it really goes into that horror category. And it's such a fun way to watch that movie, too. Like the way it starts out and everything, it's, it is it is frightening. And I remember seeing this, not on like Creature Double Feature when I was a kid, but like it would run a lot. I don't know if it runs that much now. You see uh, some of the pictures from the end of the run that appear quite often on TV, like late at night. But I would catch this on TV when I was a kid. And to me, it was always uh, in that Frankenstein vein. I never looked at this anything like dissimilar
1: in a way well and the the black and white the fog the moors i mean it all it all came together was it marketed in 39 as a horror film
0: no and it it wasn't even like sometimes you go back and you look at the original press materials for various films and like we have talked about scrooge that i wrote the book on and like the american uh pr people they didn't know what to do with it and dracula from 1931 came out it wasn't like a Halloween picture. It came out on Valentine's Day. It was marketed as like a romance, a strange romance in which there's like cadavers and blood drinking, <laughs> and, but it's like, whatever gets your rocks up, that's sort of how it was pitched. So I don't think that they knew what they had at the time with these films. And and also you, sometimes you have to, you have to make this decision with where you're going to set these films. And so Later on, these pictures with Rathbone and Bruce, they'd be updated to the modern world. So you have you have the duo taking on, like in one picture, the ultimate bogeyman and the Nazis, and you'd be encouraged to get like war bonds and, and things of that nature. But these these first two, the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes and uh, Hound of the Baskervilles, they're they're kind of like right out of like what you would expect if you had just read the stories. And I think that Nigel Bruce is uh, ripped on unfairly as this stumbling boob. He's not the Watson that we get everywhere else for the most part, like in the Granada series or obviously in the original text. But he's not as annoying as like he's sort of made out to be by people. Like He's not completely helpless. He's just there to add comedic element in some ways, but it's not like you need to excise him from the pictures in order to, to enjoy them fully. I mean, the, the, the two men obviously had the fondness for each other that translates. Like we talk about chemistry and chemistry is like, mm. man in the world is really just not chemistry is, it's like Robert Mitchum and the kid who can't speak and out of the past. They have great chemistry together, much as like Mitchum does in a way with Jane Greer. So, I think this duo has a fraternal chemistry that chemistry. That it's just it's warming. We want to go to 221B and hang out with these guys, and the roaring fire, and the Turkish slipper and the tobacco. <laughs> we want in on that.
1: Do you have a favorite Holmes from film or television?
0: Oh, that's so tough because I it's just one of those things that I that I rank Clive Merrison from they adapted all the stories the radio with him and that's the only like complete run like hubbo fell like four stories short i think for me especially when he was healthy because he had heart issues and i think that that made it uh, a struggle for him to go on and it kind of tells in his performance but i think jeremy brett is sherlock holmes to me in many ways but i would have brett merison and rathbone is like the big three like the sort of sherlock and trinity
1: all right finally we want to talk about one of the short stories the five orange pips i've not read this one before it was very it was very interesting I, I certainly didn't expect uh conan doyle's story to involve the kkk
0: yeah he actually did things of that nature not uncommonly like He would take America's problems and dump them into England, like they spilled out of America. Like uh, now we have this sewage to contend with over here. Like you see this in uh, the sign of the four. Like it's just—it's something that happens. It's like a plot reliance for him that also works. And this is in keeping with our theme of different kinds of Sherlock Holmes offerings. This is one of only two stories in which the person who comes to Sherlock Holmes and says, can you help me? Holmes says, sure. That person ends up... People should have read it by now. Go ahead and read it. It's not going to change <laughs> your enjoyment of the story anyway. That person ends up dying. But you still don't... Now, I can say that, too, because when you're reading the story, you're going to think that I lied to and that he doesn't die because it's being set up in certain in such a way. And it's through no fault of this person's own and it haunts me. It gets me when this character, this young person, young guy, he's hanging out at 221B. And there are these different like productions where they sort of like draw this out more than in others. And he's by the cozy fire, and it's raining outside and everything. It's actually the night that he's going to die. Like He's going to die within the hour. You don't think that's coming. And they're just so chummy with each other, especially Watson and this guy. They obviously have a connection. And at one point Holmes breaks in because they're having like this reverie. We can we actually see their relationship developing. And Holmes is like, gentlemen, focus please. <laughs> like that type of thing. They they're just like caught up in that. And it's just the kind of moment that you want to have with people in your life, people you like hope to meet. If you've had moments like this in the past, there are things that you look back on either fondly or in a bittersweet way if you don't know that person anymore. And uh, it's not even that Holmes drops the ball. It's just hard to see what's going to happen even even for him, maybe Johnny Dollar could just say, actually, no, a lot of people <laughs> died on Johnny Dollar's watch. Now, when I think of it, he was well-intentioned, too. Like It's just like an error, right? It's like an error in the box store. It's like, oh, my bad. E Um And it's brutal the way that the guy, the guy does die, too. And again, through no fault of his own. And it's just one of those stories that when I lay in bed at night, it's on my mind and it keeps me up like 15 minutes later and it just it doesn't sit well with me but it is a great
1: story that's colin fleming talking sherlock holmes here on downtown the podcast our thanks to colin thank you to writer howard blum and thanks to you for being with us this week downtown brought to you by cross insurance where security meets strength we'll see you next time on downtown